Look at your neighbor and say, it's going to be a fun ride tonight. My name is Danny. My beautiful wife is here right now. It's Trisha. I don't know when she'll ever realize that she got the worst end of the deal, but I'm okay with ignorance right now. I'm all perfectly all right with it. Totally, completely all right with it. Um, I, I get to direct City Hope College. City of College students, are you in here at all? Are any of you in here? two-year program for people who feel called to ministry, uh, worship, or cre the creative world, and they give two years, they earn a degree, and they, they earn it. <laughs> they definitely earn it, and so if you're, if you're interested at all ever or something just hits you a month down the road, you know where to find me. I'll be in the commons afterwards, but let's get into this tonight. Let's jump into this. If you've got your Bibles, who's got their paper Bibles with them? Now, I feel like somewhat of a hypocrite, but I don't have my paper. I've got paper notes, all right? No paper Bible tonight. If you got your Bibles with you, I want you to turn to the book of Luke. The book of Luke, chapter 19. It's right after Luke 18 and right before Luke 20. Luke 19. Now, how many of you currently have a job or have ever had a job where you have had a closing shift anywhere? Anybody at all? It's the closing shift people. Now, all of us, regardless of whatever job we hold or have, have, have had some kind of nemesis. Let, let me ask you people who have had a closing shift. How do you feel about people who walk through the doors of your establishment five minutes before close? Is there, is there a general feeling about that at all? Could, if you could verbalize the words of your heart when that door opens and you're, you're wiping off countertops, you're closing things up, you're, you're, you're tallying, you're, you're running the register, and suddenly someone walks in and you got to do it all over again. There's not really words, it's just, ah, to that. I had a job when I, was in, when I was in high school in the beginning part of college. I had a job at a grocery store, and I worked in the produce department. I was very proud of it, all right? But there was one thing that I hated about it, that I would have some unseen nemesis every single time. Now, now we, we prided ourselves on stacking the lettuce into this beautiful pyramid. You know, the, the wrapped lettuce in plastic, and, and it goes into this pyramid. Now, logic would state that you should pull the lettuce off the top. Humans are not as smart as we give them credit for being right there. I have no idea, because every single hour, we would get some kind of, hey, Danny, come to produce department, lettuce on the floor, because somebody had decided to pull the lettuce from the bottom of the stack. They couldn't even see the whole thing of lettuce, but the bottom of the stack. So every hour, I would stack lettuce. That was my job. I became a lettuce stacker. Nemesis. Now, I had a, I had a roommate who had a really interesting nemesis with his job. We were in school together. He was broke, so he got the first job that he could get. They had, they had planted a brand new mall near, near where we went to school. And so he applied to be a mall cop. He, he I mean, we all have aspirations in life, all right? His name was Adam, and Adam, Adam's like, you know what? This is a job I can handle. I've seen guys, like, sit on their golf carts and text the whole time. Like, I can do this. So I'm like, all right, man, you go for it. He gets the job, but he doesn't realize that they had overspent their budget on the buildings, that all they could hire was one mall cop for the entire complex. 
He didn't know he'd be by himself. He had no idea. And after about day two or day three, the smile had disappeared. And before long, there was this, this grimace. And then one day it happened. He walked through the door. And it wasn't Adam with his regular uniform, you know, the, the fake little badge and the, the little, like, button things on the sleeve. And, and some of them get a hat. He got a hat because right, he was special. All right? He didn't get the Segway. He got the golf carts. But there was something different about him. He had all over him, from toe all the way up to his neck, he had bubbles all over him. And I said, Adam, why? Like, what, what happened? He said, they did it again. They've been doing it all day. And he went on to explain that in the five brand new water fountains, and this is an outdoor mall, that someone had figured out that if you put dishwasher detergent in the water fountain, that it would turn into the greatest bubble machine on earth. It would sud over, and bubbles would be everywhere, all over the sidewalk, the parking lot, running into the stores. Before long, his little, his little radio was going off because all five fountains had been soaked. And not just that, but then it burns out the motor before long. And so they had to replace the motor. Day after day, Adam came home with bubbles. And his whole goal and mission, he lost himself. We lost Adam. He lost himself trying to figure out who this monster was. He tried to visualize. He went on feeds. I woke up one time, and I, I woke up, and, and, and there, was, there was about four beds in the room, and there was a desk where we would do our homework. But on the desk was not homework. I saw a little lamp, and I saw there was a map of the mall against the wall with red yarn attached to fountain. Red yarn going back. I'm like, oh, my God. This is how serial killers begin, all right? This is how it starts, and so he, 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 and then before long, he began to post still images of individuals from the, from the mall security feeds that he thought could be the culprit. He had a 13-year-old girl here and a 21-year-old guy and a 75-year-old man. It's the sneaky ones you got to look out for, all right? So I'm like, Adam, Adam, you got to either figure this out or quit because you're getting weird, all right? And so one day, he hatches a plan. He realizes that the person, whoever it was, would look for the golf cart and then go to the opposite end of the mall and soap that fountain. And so he left his golf cart where he wasn't. And he hid in a tree. I kid you not, if you would have driven to the Pinnacle Mall in Birmingham, Alabama at that point in time, you would have seen a mall cop standing in a tree waiting for his victim. You can't make this stuff up. Before long, here comes the little monster. He was a 16-year-old kid, skateboarder, backwards hat, and Adam said, I got this. And so as he told me later, he said some kind of uncontrollable rage came over him. The hours spent fishing these burnt-out pumps from the, from the water fountains, all of this motion began to flood. And before long, this primeval yell came out of him, and he jumped out of there. Adam's from Iowa, all right? He was a state champion wrestler, all right? 
he jumps out of the tree, tackles the 16-year-old kid on the, on the pavement, and begins yelling into his radio, I got him! I got him! Well, then his mother walks out of the store, and Adam was fired. <laughs> Who won that day? Debatable, all right? Debatable. I say all that to say this, never underestimate the power of a tree. Look at your neighbor and say, don't underestimate the power of a tree. You may wonder what I'm talking about unless you have turned to Luke 19. See, in Luke 19, there's a very familiar story. It's a story that we have songs about and nurseries rhymes, and I'm not going to sing to you because I want you to stay, all right? But it's a story about a man named Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus, and some of you, the songs are going through your head right now. He was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. And so here we have it in Luke 19, and I, I'm gonna just going to read this story here. We're going to go through it just real quick before we settle down and talk about it. Starting in verse 1, and I'm just going to read this story. Jesus entered Jericho and made his way through the town. There was a man there named Zacchaeus. Everyone say Zacchaeus. He was the chief tax collector in the region, and he had become very rich. He tried to get a look at Jesus, but was too short to see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree beside the road, for Jesus was going to pass that way. When Jesus came by, he looked up at Zacchaeus and called him by name. Zacchaeus, he said, quick, come down. I must be a guest in your home today. Zacchaeus quickly climbed down and took Jesus to his house in great excitement and joy. But the people were displeased. He is gone to be the guest of a notorious sinner, they grumbled. Meanwhile, Zacchaeus stood before the Lord and said, I, I, I'll give half my wealth to the poor, Lord. And if I've cheated people on their taxes, I will give them back four times as much. I want a refund like that from the IRS, all right? Four times as much. Jesus responded, salvation has come to this home today. For this man has shown himself to be a true son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save those who are lost. Now, uh, how many of you have like a new version of an iPhone in this room at all? A anybody at all? What's amazing is it's not just the cameras, but it's the slow motion feature. And I don't know if you have like taken a video and then run it in slow motion and, and suddenly discovered you can see things in slow motion that you could see in no other way. Or maybe you've been at a sports event and you're like, dude, he was out! And then slow motion happens. You're like, no, he wasn't out. We lost, all right? And so anyway, slow motion reveals things. And what I want to do for the next few minutes is I want to walk through this story in slow motion. I want to go verse by verse, and I want us to see some things that we have never seen before in the story of Zacchaeus. Does that sound good? All right, let's do this, all right? So let's go to verse 1 here, and let's start off. It says, Jesus entered Jericho and made his way through the town. There was a man there named... Just seeing if you're following along, that poor guy, all right? He has a double consonant and three vowels in a row in his name, all right? There was a man there named Zacchaeus. He was the chief tax collector in the region, and he had become very rich. Now, to understand this story, to understand anything that follows, you have to understand one gigantic thing, one gigantic piece from history. Tax collectors were not what they are now. Tax collectors were the villains of 
New Testament times. You see, Israel was not a self-governed nation. They had been conquered by the Romans. So therefore, the Romans collected taxes. And the Romans didn't have a Roman tax collector. They just thought a little more sinisterly about it. So what they did was they got a, a, a native person from that town, and they assigned him. They said, you get to be a tax collector. We just need to get 20% from everybody. Now, what you decide to collect after that that's, that's up to you. We'll just turn a blind eye to that. So regularly, tax collectors wouldn't just collect the taxes they needed. They collected the taxes they wanted. And so they gained a reputation quickly in town. Because how many of you know that if the government's requiring $20 from you for taxes, and then suddenly Zacchaeus is asking for 1000 what are you going to do? You say, resist. We're not going to do that. Well, the problem with that theory is that Zacchaeus and the tax collectors were able to have the Roman soldiers at their disposal. And so you debated as long until you saw the Roman soldiers, the ones who conquered the world, walk up to your house, and then you paid. And in any town, any city, especially the city named Jericho, and we're going to find out a little bit more in just a second, tax collectors were the scum of the earth. They were rich as all get out. But they were the scum of the earth. Why? I want you to picture your life. Because the thing is, is that if you didn't have enough money to pay the taxes demanded of you, you would have to begin to sell things. You'd sell your stuff. You'd sell your house. You'd sell your trade. And back in the day, there was a despicable practice of even if you came short and you had children, you could sell your children into slavery to pay debts. This was a common thing. And it is indicated to us that in this city, Zacchaeus has been doing this type of business. Imagine losing your house to this corrupt man, and every day as you walk through the main street, walking by his giant house, how do you feel? Imagine, if you will, the tragedy of having to sell one of your children to pay the debt that you know is unfair. And every day walking by his house and hearing the sounds of his children playing in the courtyard. There was anger in this town. There was animosity. And it wasn't just petty like, oh, I don't want to pay my taxes. No, it was unfair what the people had to go through because of the tax collector system. It was unfair. And here we start in verse 2 with a man named Zacchaeus. Oh, and on top of that, he's short. Really short. I don't know about you, but... I hate being bossed around by people shorter than me. It's just a weird pet peeve of mine. You're not laughing because there might be someone short sitting next to you. I understand, all right? But it is, it's a tough thing, all right? So just imagine how loved this man is, how adored this man is. And that's where we get into verse 3. This, this verse is, is the, are the hinges, this verse is the hinge on which the entire story swings on. Go ahead and show verse 3. It says, he tried to get a look at Jesus, but he was too short to see over the crowd. This is not a minor detail. This is not saying, and Zacchaeus was wearing a blue tunic that day. This was not a minor thing. He was too short to see Jesus. The man was short. You say, okay, you're really harping on that shortness. I'm going somewhere with it. You see, the thing about the shortness is this. Let me bring us into the story. Because what was Zacchaeus trying to do? He was trying to see Jesus. But he was too short. And each and every one of us 
regardless of what background or what hometown we come from or what kind of family we were born into, all of us has, we were born with some form of shortness in our life. All of us were born with something in our lives or we lived with something in our lives that made it difficult for us to see Jesus correctly. Let me give you an example. Maybe the best way for you to describe your father growing up wasn't loving or even there. And it's hard for you to see a heavenly father as someone who is ever-present, ever-desiring, arms open, and everlasting love. It's hard for you to see that. Why? Because you were born and dealt that card of shortness in your life. And it's hard for you to see God correctly. Or maybe you have walked through something or been hurt by a church before. It happens. And guess what? Suddenly it's hard for you when you're invited to a church. Maybe tonight you gave, you gave this whole, hey, let's gather and let's talk about Jesus thing, a whole new chance. But for years you've been running from it. Why? Because you were hurt. And not only were you hurt, but it's hard for you to sit in a church without thinking about people talking behind your back or a hurt that you received. It's hard for you to see Jesus. All of us have some kind of shortness in our lives that is an obstacle for us to see Jesus over. And we're faced with a choice. What will we give to see Jesus? What will we do to see a better look of Jesus? What will we do in order to have Jesus within our sight? And it's indicated to us in Scripture that Zacchaeus and Jesus have never met before this moment. Zacchaeus simply hears that Jesus is in town. And so he's about to do something crazy. But why go to such lengths to see someone who you've never met before? Why? There's something inside of us, a God-shaped hole. And we'll spend our entire lives, our entire lives trying to fill it with all these different things, whether entertainment or whether, whether it's a relationship or whether it's a substance. We'll find ourselves trying to fill it, but only God can fill it. And what's interesting is that there's some part of all of us that knows, I think the answer is in town. I think... I think this may be what I've always been looking for. I don't know if you've ever used the phrase, I'll know it when I see it. I can't describe it to you right now, but I'll know it when I see it. It's like you ladies when you go shopping. You see, guys, it, it, shopping is like in and out. You're out in like five minutes in the store. Trisha and I go shopping, and it is a soul-sucking activity, all right? It drains my soul. And what we do is we make a beeline. We look at every rack, we look from the, the front of the store to the back of the store. And then we, we go back to racks we've looked at before. Because she may have changed her mind on just how good the clothes were compared to the ones over here. And what's, cra what's crazy is, is that there's such different, distinct shopping styles. But the phrase she says is, I'll know it when I see it. What are you looking for? I'll know it when I see it. I'll, I'll know it. When I've set my eyes on it, and there's a part of us that has been programmed and made for truth. We have been created for the Savior. We've been created for a relationship with God. And there's a part of us that knows it. And we'll go on a search our entire lives 
looking for that truth, searching for that truth. You see, there's a myth out there, and that is this, and, and it's perpetuated by people who know God but are afraid to witness, and that is this, well, people outside the church aren't hungry for God. Well, people who, who haven't been going to church their whole lives, they, they're not hungry for Jesus. That's so wrong. Look at Zacchaeus. He is about to do something crazy for someone he has never met before. He's never seen before. Why? Because there is this hunger that he cannot describe on the inside of him. Something inside of him tells him, you've got to get to see this carpenter. You've got to see him. There's just something inside of him. <laughs> Couldn't do it with one hand. I just talked into the water bottle. Yes, I did. All right. Couldn't play that off anyway. And so that is how we get to verse 4, all right? In verse 4, it says this. This is the crazy thing. So he ran ahead, and he climbed a sycamore fig tree beside the road, for Jesus was going to pass by that way. There is so much power in the thought of, if I could only catch a glimpse if I could only set my eyes on him, if I could only see him, if I could only get a better look at Jesus. And Zacchaeus had some excuses. He had some excuses not to climb the tree. He had some reasons he could have just taken his ball and went home. He could have just decided, all right, I'm done with this. The first excuse was this, the inconsiderateness of the crowd. Well, you know what? If Jesus was all kinds of important, guess what? They wouldn't be so selfish and they wouldn't not let me see Jesus. And so often we allow this to be not a hurdle. We allow it to be a brick wall in which we stop right there. Well, all these people are inconsiderate. They're not going to help me out. They're not going to talk to me. So therefore, I'm just going to stop right here. It didn't stop Zacchaeus, though. And so he had two excuses. The first one was the inconsiderateness of others, the selfishness of others. And the second excuse he had was simply this. He had a reputation to protect. You don't do something as undignified as climb a tree. The thing is this, is that if you have a deficiency, you don't draw attention to it. You don't. I cannot dance at all. Asians are not known for their rhythm, okay? We're known for rash decisions and mathematics, all right? But uh, it's, we're not known for our rhythm, okay? And so therefore, I will not draw attention to that and dance in public. Won't do it. If you are short, you know what you don't need to do? Climb a tree, don't climb a tree if you're short. It draws attention to your deficiency. And so he had two excuses. And yet, I think we all have excuses, don't we? We all have kind of built-in excuses, reasons why it wouldn't be convenient, reasons why we shouldn't, reasons why I shouldn't climb. If you're in here tonight and you don't have an active living relationship with God or it's been a while since you've talked to Jesus, let me talk to you for just a moment. First off, I'm so happy you're here. We're very happy you're here. This is family. And secondly, I want to ask you something. I want you to ask yourself something. What excuses have you given yourself for not climbing lately? I know when I had fallen into a particular part of my life and I wasn't, I wasn't running after God like I should, I remember different excuses. Well, I'm busy. Well, I've got other things. Well, God knows my heart. And I used these different excuses, and you know what it kept me from doing? It kept me from climbing the tree to see Jesus. It kept me from getting a better, a better sight line for the Christ. So if that's you here tonight, I want to ask you something. 
Will you climb? Will you climb tonight? And the second thing I want to, and this is for those of you in this room, and you know Christ, and you have a relationship with him, and you're walking with him. In this story of Zacchaeus and, and Jesus and the crowd, what are we called to be? You may say, oh, well, Jesus, that's lofty. I mean, sure, yeah, imitate Christ, but not, not, not in my question. I'm, I have the microphone, so no. All right? Uh, the crowd, no. Crowd's not good here. Don't be the crowd. Well, then what should I be? Should I be Zacchaeus? No. You should be the tree. You're called to be the tree. We're called to be the tree. Why? So that somebody can see Christ because of what we do. Because of what we do, somebody can suddenly, they've been short their whole life. They've been deprived of a good view of Christ. I love the name of this place. It's called View. And guess what we're called to be? We're called to be trees that give people a better view of Jesus. Because it may change somebody. It may do something. We are called to be the tree. But let's just be honest, how often are we afraid of being the tree? There's a lot of pressure with that, isn't there? I don't know if I should be the tree. I don't, uh, and if I, if I was your enemy, if I was, that's a scary thought, if I was your enemy though, let me just be real honest and say that that would be my greatest weapon. You have the greatest truth inside of you. You have piercing light for this world of darkness hidden within you. And I am afraid genuinely of what's inside of you. Do you know what I do? I make you afraid to use the only weapon which will defeat me. I make you afraid. And so you may disqualify yourself from being a tree when you're around people. Maybe it's, oh, I don't know enough. I didn't, I didn't go to a Bible college, or I haven't been in church for too long, or I haven't read my Bible today, or, I, or this week, or I haven't, I haven't done this and I haven't done that. And we disqualify ourselves. God used a donkey in Scripture to speak. You are more qualified than a donkey. No, really, you are. You're more qualified than a tree to show people what Jesus really looks like and who he really is. And I remember missing opportunities, and I remember kicking myself, saying, "What, Danny, what are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? You see, we've got to realize that what we have to offer is precious. We have like a salesman mentality where it's like I'm afraid to walk up to this person because I feel like I have to sell them Jesus and I have to tell them why their life would be so much better with this in their life instead of that. And maybe I have to, Romans wrote, I don't know the first, second, or third. I don't know the entire Romans wrote. And I don't, and, and suddenly there's this like, there's this intimidation factor that happens and before long. It's like, okay, well, somebody else can do it. Pastor Jared will see them before long. He's really good with people, so I'll just let him talk to him. Yeah. And we get really intimidated and we get really afraid to share the gospel. And we've got to shift from being salesmen. And we've got to understand that what we have inside of us is precious. It's precious. It's valuable. It is water to those who are dying of thirst. To those who have been trapped in darkness their whole life, it's the hope of a new dawn. It is beauty to somebody who has never seen it, color to somebody who's lived in a black and white world, air to the suffocating. We've got to get past ourselves. We've got to get past ourselves and be the tree. You may say, well, you know, I, I really don't think I'll be good at that. I don't, really don't think I could talk somebody into knowing Jesus. Folks, 
your arguments about following Jesus, you know what? Forget trying to argue people to Jesus. Because honestly, if somebody's considering Christ, the Holy Spirit's been working on them already. Little do you know what's going on underneath the surface. Little do you know how God is calling their name and they're beginning to hear it for the very first time. Little do you know. And don't focus on finding an argument that will argue somebody to Jesus. Don't focus on that. Focus on giving them a better view of Jesus. Focus on how to position yourself so that you are available for them to see Jesus when the time comes. But they suddenly, I'm short, but I suddenly want to climb. It doesn't make any sense, and it won't make sense in that moment. Just be available. Just be available, and something amazing will happen. And that brings us to verse 5, because the story doesn't end there. It goes somewhere amazing. It says, when Jesus came by, he looked up at Zacchaeus and called him by name. Zacchaeus, he said, quick, come down. I must be a guest in your home today. You see, we've, we've been talking a long while about what happens when we lay our eyes on him. But what happens when we realize that his eyes are on us? What happens when we realize that the attention of heaven is on us? See, there's a truth that the enemy would absolutely love to hide you from and to disguise from you. And that is this, the attention of heaven is on you. This earth is not a top that the Lord has spun and stepped away from and said, well, I hope they figure it out. But we have a God who is intricately, desirously wanting to be in your life. <laughs> David said in Psalms 139, Lord, if I could count the thoughts you have about me, they would outnumber the grains of sand on the seashore. Some evil professor at the University of California, Berkeley, made a class count how many grains of sand are in one cubic foot of beach. One cubic foot. And do you know the number they came up with? 1.8 billion. And David said, if I could count the thoughts you have about me, they would outnumber the grains of sand on the seashore. What do we know about his thoughts? They're for good and not for evil. They're thoughts to give you a hope and a future. Do you realize how special you are, that the attention of heaven is on you, that everything you see in this world was created in six days, but God spent nine months on you? Do you realize just how the attention of heaven is fixed on you tonight? see, it says that Jesus looked up. And unless Jesus had some strange fascination with the tops of trees or an airplane flying with a will you marry me sign was going by, there was only one reason Jesus would look up. A man named Zacchaeus. The most unworthy man in the village. The one who deserved it the least. This was not a matter of worthiness. This was not a matter of somebody earning the attention of God. This was not a matter of being somebody who was just born special, where that person just hears from God differently and gets different times with God that no one else gets. No. And then something happens. He says his name. He calls Zacchaeus by name. Now, there is the, the, the most, uh, now, oh, everybody has a favorite Christmas movie. Everybody, all right? Everybody. And if you don't, you weren't born in this country, all right? And so, I, my favorite Christmas movie is easily the most underrated Christmas movie of all time. It is Jingle All the Way, all right? I don't know if you have seen Jingle All the Way. 
Arnold Schwarzenegger and acting collide, all right? It is a beautiful, beautiful movie, but there is one scene in there, and I don't want to ruin the movie for you if you haven't seen it because you need to, all right? I don't care if it's March, you need to, all right? And that is this, is that Jamie, his, the man's, Arnold Schwarzenegger's son, he wants a Turbo Man doll. Turbo Man is his favorite television character. He's a super. He's a. He's a superhero. He's a, he, 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 and, and so all he wants is an action figure. And somehow through this entire plot, this entire movie, Arnold Schwarzenegger ends up dressed as Turbo Man at a Christmas parade. And he lands right in front of his son. And he looks at his son at the costume and he says, "Jamie." And Jamie looks and he says, "He knows my name." And as funny as that scene is, and as special as that scene is, here we have Zacchaeus, a man who has not lived righteously, a man who has run from everything good, a man who is up in the trees, and he has no idea why he's there. And suddenly, the Son of God not only knows his name, but speaks his name. And then we get to verse 6 and 7, and it's the rest of the story. It says, Zacchaeus quickly climbed down and took Jesus to his house in great excitement and joy. But the people were displeased. He's gone to be the guest of a notorious sinner, they grumbled. Note the difference in the reaction of Zacchaeus and the people. See, Zacchaeus is all kinds of happy, all kinds of, I never expected this to happen before. I never, I never thought this would, I never thought this would happen. And look at the people's reaction. Look, he's, he's going to Zacchaeus' house. It's anger. It's jealousy. Does Jesus care? Does he take a poll? Does he consult what is popular? You see, so many times I've talked to people, and the biggest thing holding them back from following Christ is that people in their life know what they've been doing and how they've been living and what they've done. And there's just no way that that life change would be accepted. There's no way that that life change would suddenly, like people would accept it. They'd call him a fake. They'd they'd be upset. They, they, they They just somehow know this. And so they don't come to Christ. Why? Because they know that they won't be accepted once they do. That is an indictment on us as Christians. That is. Because the man who wrote most of our New Testament was a murderer. And then Jesus and then Jesus, and then Jesus. And here's a thought. What would have helped the people more? Jesus doing what the people, what the people wanted and rejecting Zacchaeus as he goes by him, or actually changing the life of the one who was making their life miserable? Do we really know what we want? When we live in moments of jealousy and in envy and moments of that person's not worthy of that or that person's not worthy of that or that that person doesn't deserve that. Do we really know what we want in that moment? And so I'm going to kind of close this story here in verses 8 and 9. We're going to skip right over. And it goes to right to verse 10, the last verse in this story. Jesus is talking about how salvation has come to the house. Zacchaeus has repented. He's promised, if I've cheated anybody, I will pay back four times as much as I've stolen. He's saying, I am willing to bankrupt myself to show that I'm, I'm repentance. I'm sorry. And Jesus said this. Not only does he say salvation came to this house, but he said, for the Son of Man came to seek and save 
those who are lost. We must let Christ's passion inspire passion within us for those who are the least likely, the least worthy. And maybe as I've been sharing this story, the Holy Spirit's been speaking to you about a Zacchaeus in your life, one that perhaps you know you should have been reaching out to, somebody that maybe perhaps you've been afraid to be a tree for. You don't have the right words. You don't know how to argue that. And it's just prevented you from even taking the first step. We're in this basic series. We shouldn't do this alone. We shouldn't go alone. We shouldn't go at it alone. How do we fill every seat in this auditorium finding our Zacchaeuses, finding those that we're called to reach? Christ's passion for the lost must inspire passion inside of us for the lost. There's a thought that somewhat haunts me, somewhat inspires me, and I'm going to kind of close with this thought. The Bible talks about in heaven one day, and, you know, those are great verses to look to and, and, and to be excited about. It speaks of something called the marriage supper of the Lamb, and I don't want to spend time being all theological or anything. I'll suffice to say, it's exactly what it sounds. It's a big feast in heaven. God's children, He's there. Saints of all the ages, present. And I have this thought, and it nags me in the back of my mind. It gets me. I can picture myself being sat down at this table, definitely nowhere near the head. There are heroes of our faith that have gone before us. And sat next to me is a little girl. I look over and I say, hi. How are you doing? Oh, I'm so excited this is everything that I, I've been told that it's going to be and more. What's your name? Well, my name's Rebecca. Okay, Rebecca. Um, I mean, we're not starting yet, so um, what was your life like? How did you get here? And in this thought, I hear Rebecca, and I'm, I, I love history, and I love the history of our church, and I love, I love hearing about those who went before us and even sacrifice greatly, and I, I can hear Rebecca being one of those individuals who, during the time that Christians were persecuted in Europe, perhaps she's one of those individuals, and she talks about how one day her whole family, starting with her father, made a decision to follow Jesus, and then her mother made the decision, and she knew, she knew Jesus would have to be real, if it was so real in order to, to her mother and her father, so she gave her life, and then one day they came. They took her father first, and they, she knew these are the people who throw people into the Colosseums with lions and, and with gladiators. She never saw her father again, and then her mother was taken. And then before long, they came for her, and here she is sitting next to me. And this thing inside of me fears as she looks up at me, and she says, so what's your story? I want to have a story. I want to have something to say in that moment. I want to have something that I could say. I don't want to say I lived life safe. I didn't take any risks. I didn't go out on a limb. I didn't try because I was afraid of failing. I love the Olympics. 
love them. Absolutely love them. USA. Absolutely love them. And, and, and gymnastics is amazing. We won the gold, all right? And, 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 but how absurd would it be to see an Olympic gymnast walk up to this balance beam and for the entire routine just kind of lay there and just hold on to it as tightly as possible, sees the timer going down, and then quickly gets up and dismounts. Don't know why they do that at the end of the routine at all. Somebody needs to answer that for me. But how stupid would that be if somebody came up, well done! No, the score would reflect the degree of difficulty. The score would reflect the risk taken. And so many of us, if we were to look at our lives with spiritual lenses, would be just like that gymnast. We're not taking any risks. We're not going out of the way to, to endanger ourselves or our reputation or to look stupid. We're not going to do that. Why? Because we're going to play it safe. We're going to play it safe. And folks, I want to have a story to tell. I want to introduce people and show them to Jesus because he's been life to me. He's my reason for living. 